Let me pray for us, if I could, as we look into God's Word together. Lord, it's not by my clever words that your work is done. It's not by eloquent speech. It's not by even really hours of preparation, Lord. It's by your Holy Spirit that the Word of God is embedded in our souls and transforms our hearts. I pray for you to do your work among us today. We need to hear from you, Lord. We need to hear from you. Thank you for this incredible story from the lips of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand it better today, and please apply it to our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last weekend, we began exploring this uh, amazing story that I like to call the parable of the lost sons. It was told by Jesus Christ. And judging by the emails and texts and Facebooks I received this week, this story really touched a nerve in this congregation. And certainly any time we talk about fathers and families and sons and daughters and family tension and family members being estranged from one another and those kinds of things, it just kind of hits us right down where we live, doesn't it? It certainly does. Last week, we focused mostly on the younger son's story, the prodigal and his season of rebellion, his return home, and his father's lavish celebration over him. Hanging in our hallway at home is uh, a print, one of many that I really love by an artist named Ron DeCiani, and it's titled The Prodigal. And I love this print. I love how it portrays the father heart of God, because that is who the father in the story represents, right? The father is God. And after weeks or months of heartache and hoping and waiting, the father is overwhelmed and overjoyed that his lost son has come home. And that picture, that image of the father, you know, pulling up his robes and sprinting out to his son and then just lavishing him with hugs and kisses that image stirs up deep emotions in a lot of us, doesn't it? Well, I'd like us to recall what prompted Jesus to tell this story of the lost sons in the first place. And you might remember that the opening verses of Luke 15 kind of give us the setting. Jesus was eating a meal one day with some, shall we say, notorious characters from the village. Sinners, it says, and tax collectors. And while they were eating, some Religious people, some Pharisees, were off in the corner kind of observing and watching. And they were disturbed, weren't they? Because it didn't seem to them like it bothered Jesus much that the outcasts of society were gathered around him and that it was sinners and tax collectors who seemed to be drawn to him. That was the kind of company, in their minds anyway, that should be avoided at all costs because they were considered unclean and hanging around them would contaminate you and make you unclean. And Jesus, being God, let me say that again, Jesus, being God, knew what they were thinking. And so he tells this story. And the story has a twofold message, one for the sinners who were seated around him, and one for those religious people who were all upset and agitated. The message to the sinners, of course, is this. When you finally come to your senses, when you see how foolish you've been and how empty the world really is, and when you've finally had enough, you can repent and turn around and go home to the Father. That was his message to rebellious sinners. You can go home. And amazingly, the Father will not beat you. He will not berate you. 
He will not kill you for your shameful sin, but instead he will graciously welcome you back. You can come home. That was his message to the sinners. But what is his message to the smug, self-righteous, religious people? Well, that's what Act 2 in the story is going to reveal. And there's a study outline, as you know, in your worship folder. You can pull that out and follow along with us. Remember what was happening at the end of Act 1. A party was going on back at the house, right? Band was playing, music was loud, sounds of laughter, lots of voices talking excitedly, glasses clinking, everybody celebrating. But when the curtain opens on Act 2, the scene has shifted to a spot out in the field, maybe several hundred yards away from the house. And we pick up Act 2 in Luke 15, verse 25, where we're introduced to another character in the story. Now his older son, the father's older son, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the servant, said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So right here, Jesus introduces his listeners to another character in the story. We discover that the father, this incredible father, has a second son, his oldest son, the older brother to the young prodigal. Now, like many older brothers, he's the responsible one. Now, I'm an older brother in my family. I have two sisters, and I'm the oldest. And, of course, I was always the responsible one. How many of you are oldest siblings in your family? Can I see your hands? Yeah, many of us. Wow. And we were the responsible ones, right? You could always count on us to come through for you. In that culture, the firstborn son did carry an increased weight of responsibility. He did. It was expected that as as the firstborn grew up that he would take on more and more oversight of the family business. And as his parents grew older and more frail and less able to take care of themselves, it was the oldest son who would take on the responsibility of making sure his parents were adequately provided for and cared for. And when that day came when the father would pass on, it was the oldest son's duty to take over the whole enterprise, the whole family business, and keep it going and ensure that the household remained stable and needs were met. So because of those expectations, it was also true that the firstborn would have been entitled to receive a larger share of the inheritance, a double portion, in fact. And so when that eldest son was out working in the field or learning how to supervise the servants, like dad had always done, that firstborn son would know that he was actually investing in his own future because most of that would one day be his. So on this particular day, the older brother is out in the field doing what he did every day, except the Sabbath. He was working, maybe digging, maybe planting, maybe weeding, maybe harvesting, maybe supervising some of those servants. Of course, he's had an to shoulder an extra load since his kid brother took off and abandoned the family. Truth is, his little brother, in his mind, has been dead to him since that day because he, in effect, disowned the family. In fact, in that culture, it wasn't uncommon that in the event of something like that, there would actually be a 
funeral ceremony of sorts, basically acknowledging that this kid has abandoned us, he's disowned us. And he would then, in a sense, be dead to the rest of the family members. So here's the older brother out working in the field. And now the sun is going down and the day is drawing to a close. He's heading back to the house and he hears some commotion coming from the general direction of the house. A a ruckus is going on. That's strange. It's usually pretty quiet this time of night. So he calls a servant over. Hey, what's going on at the house? I thought bridge club was tomorrow night. What's that all about? And the servant runs up and just kind of gushes. Haven't you heard? Junior has come home. He's back. And your dad is super excited, man. You ought to see it. He has pretty much gone unhinged. And he's pulling out out all the stops. He's throwing this huge party. I think everybody in town is there. You ought to go check it out. What's the older brother's response? Verse 28. But he was angry. And he refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. means pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, hear the tone? Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Take note of that. We're going to come back to that. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... He's disowned him in his mind. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, some of us can relate to this older brother's reaction. What the heck are you doing, Dad? Okay, he came home. Good for him. But you're throwing a party? Come on. As we mentioned last weekend, the older brother's reaction really was not far off the mark when it came to what was expected in that culture. That was a culture where law and justice and especially honor reigned supreme. Those were the paramount values in that culture. So living a lifestyle that brought shame on your family or brought shame on your father was one of the absolute worst things you could do. Legally, that rebel son, upon returning home, could have been punished by being beaten or even killed. That was the proper way for the son's shameful behavior to be erased and for the family's honor to be restored. So think about it. Throwing a party for this prodigal son would itself have been viewed as a shameful act. The fact that he had repented of his foolishness and come home was beside the point. It did not erase the monstrous offense. So now, do you see what's happening here? In the older brother's mind, not only has his little brother disgraced the family, but what? His dad, his father, is now acting shamefully and disgracing the family by celebrating his rebellious son's return home without levying any consequences. And so here's what's happening. The focus of the older brother's anger is shifting from his kid brother to dad. He's angry at dad. I can only imagine his disgust if he had actually seen his middle-aged dad hiking up his robe and running like a little schoolgirl towards his brother out on the path. I can only imagine his disgust, his scorn. Maybe the servant told him about that little episode. We don't know. In any event, he has no intention, this older brother has no intention whatsoever of going in and joining the party, 
no intention of celebrating his brother's change of heart and return home, and no intention of sharing in his father's joy. He's sullen, disgusted, resentful. He's angry at his stupid brother, and now he's even angrier at his shameful dad, almost to the point of despising him. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story, and there's people seated around him, and the religious people are over in the corner. And I wonder if around this point they start thinking, you know, nudging each other, hey, I think he's talking about us. I think we're the older brother. I wonder if they got it. Well, notice the older brother's focus in his little diatribe with his father there. What's his focus? Yeah. What about me? What about the fact, Dad, that he left, but I stayed? What about the fact that party boy here went out and flittered away your money, but I've been very careful to protect your assets by working very hard for you all these years? I would never do what he did. Have you ever said that? I would never do what they did. And what about the fact that I've had to pull double duty since Junior took off there? I've been the good kid. What has it gotten me? Where's my party? You never even gave me a goat. (laughs) Here you are killing a fattened calf for him. I never even got a goat so I could party with my friends. What are you going to do to get a party around here? Go wreck your life? That's, That's the tone, isn't it? despising. Can can you just kind of picture him out there? Remember, it's probably nighttime. There's a party going on back at the house, and there's two lone figures facing each other out in the night. One is silhouetted with hands outstretched, pleading, son, son, come. Come into the house. Come on. Share my joy. Your brother's home. Come on. And the other figure's pointing, you know. You, what are you thinking? What were you doing? You ought to make him pay for all that he's done, all the shame and dishonor he's brought on our family. You kind of picture that? The tension in that moment? Where's your sense of honor, Dad? What are the townspeople going to think about us when they hear that you welcome this kid home without as, as much as a good tongue lashing given to him? Well, what's the dad going to say? According to the unspoken rules of that culture, his older son was, was right in a sense. Father looks tenderly at his angry son, verse 31, and he said to him, Son, I love that, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting, it's right, to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead. He was dead to us. And now he's alive. He was lost and is found. Son, listen, you're right. You didn't leave. You've always been with me. I know that. Hey, if it's the money that's bothering you, yeah, he blew his share of the inheritance, but yours is still intact. It's still coming to you. Don't worry about that. I don't agree with everything your brother did, son. It was foolish. It was stupid. It was wrong, like you're saying. But he's repented. and I I think it's real. I really do. I believe it's real. And he's come back, and I want him to feel a part of the family again. So come on in. Join the celebration. I want you to be happy for him and for me. Let's rejoice together. He was dead and now he's alive. Let's celebrate that he's been found and our family is reunited. What a dad. What an amazing, incredible father. And right at this point in the story, when you're on the edge of your seat wondering, how's this going to play out? What happens? 
The lights go down, the curtain falls, and it's over. This abrupt, kind of weird ending. Jesus just kind of ends it right there, and we're left wondering, well, what happened? Did the older brother come to his senses and repent of his self-righteousness and forgive his brother and go into the party and be reconciled? Did he apologize to his dad for his resentment and bitterness? Or did he let his resentment consume him and go, you know, light the house on fire or something? What happened? Well, we don't know. The curtain comes down for good. The story's done. Surely the religious people standing over in the corner, surely they had to get Jesus' point, don't you think? What was he saying? I believe there are several truths Jesus intended to drive home through this story to his listeners and to us. And the first one is the biggie. The first lesson of the parable of the two sons is this. There are two kinds of lostness. There are two kinds of lostness. And this often comes as a surprise to religious people, and it's kind of unsettling. So let's think about this for a moment. The two sons in the story obviously represent the two groups of people who are there listening. The sinners who were gathered around Jesus, the tax collectors and prostitutes and those people, they were represented by who in the story? The younger prodigal son, right? And the religious people off standing in the corner looking down their noses, they're represented by who? The older brother. And what Jesus is saying is that it's not just the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes who are spiritually lost. The religious folks are lost too. There's two kinds of lostness, rebellion and religion. And that comes as a shock to some people. They know that rebellion is bad and drunkenness and immorality and theft and all that. They know those things are bad, but they think the answer is religion and being good. But let's think about religion for a minute. What's at the core of religion? Two things. God exists and God wants you to be good. That is religion. There is a God. He exists, a supreme being, and he is good and holy and righteous, and he wants you to try your best to be good like him. That's religion. Maybe you believe that. Religion tells us we should try hard to keep his rules. Ultimately, he will reward our efforts at being good, and he will punish those who are lazy and not trying very hard. That's religion. And in the New Testament, we find religion embodied most in what group of people? A group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees. They're the embodiment of religion. They were a group of very religious people more religious than any of you, and more religious than me. They were obsessed with being good, and they tended to look down on people who weren't trying as hard as they were to be good, and they especially had great disdain for those poor, pitiful, sinful people, drunkards, thieves, prostitutes, and such. But now Jesus comes along, and tells this story, and it feels like he's actually indicting them, the good people. It seems to be saying something they don't like, something about them and something about God. First, they would have never believed that God would act like the father in the story acted. 
that God in their minds would never have acted like that father. Jesus' picture of God in this story was nothing like their picture of God. Their God was primarily concerned with justice and doing the right thing and obedience and above all, honor. That's what their God was concerned with. So they could never picture their God caving into a rebellious son's demand for his share of the inheritance. That would have been shameful. They could not and would not picture their God eagerly looking every day for the return of this rebellious son. They certainly couldn't envision their God shamelessly hiking up his robe and sprinting out towards that son and then hugging him and smothering him with hugs and kisses. That didn't register in their concept of God at all. And then reinstating him into the family without exacting the pound of flesh? That didn't make sense. And then to think of God all excited and throwing a party? A lavish celebration and blowing more money on a son like that while doing seemingly nothing at all for the good son? That would have just enraged them. Did not make sense. God doesn't do that, they would have thought. God doesn't act like that. God loves good people who stay home and do the right thing and try to be good and work hard and be responsible. That's who God loves. In short, grace was a foreign concept to them, like it still is to religious people. A gracious God was an outlandish concept. And through this story, Jesus, in effect, was saying, you guys are wrong. You're all wrong about God and what he's like and what what he thinks about sin and sinners and what he thinks about you. Jesus was showing very clearly that these religious people were just as lost as the sinners that they looked down on. Lostness comes in two very different looking but equally damning forms. Rebellion and religion. Because that's kind of unsettling to think about, let's unpack it a little bit. Rebellion. Well, we know what rebellion looks like, don't we? Rebellion is all about being bad. (laughs) Give me some rules and I'll break them. Religion is about what? Trying to be good. Keeping the rules. Rebellion is about disobeying. In fact, it can become recreational. How many commandments can I break in one night? Religion is all about obeying. Remember the older son talking to his dad? Dad, I have never disobeyed you. Really? Who does that sound like, by the way? Doesn't it sound like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? How can I have eternal life? Jesus said, well, here's the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, Kept them all since I was a kid. I'm all good. What else you got? This guy sounds like that guy. I have never disobeyed you. Remember that chore chart, Dad, you gave us as kids? And every box was checked on mine every day. I have never disobeyed you. Religion is all about obeying. Rebellion is about nonconformity. I don't want to be boxed in. I don't want to be confined. I don't want to be restricted. I want to break out. Religion is about conformity. I value structure, tradition, doing and wearing and drinking and going to places that the other people in my group go and drink and wear and do. Conformity. Rebellion is about freedom. 
Yes! Nobody telling me what to do. That's heavenly to me. Just doing whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. That's rebellion. Religion is all about justice. Everybody getting what they deserve. Rebellion, of course, is about immorality. Who knows how many loose women the prodigal had over at his condo every night. Religion is about what? Morality. Living the clean life. Not drinking, not smoking, keeping the rules. Very clean living, very moral. That's religion. Rebellion's about being lazy. <laughs> I just want to do what I want to do, and if I don't want to do nothing, I don't want anybody telling me I need to do something when I just want to do nothing. That's what rebellion's about. Religion's about working hard. Oh, you gotta, if you're religious, you've got to work hard. I mean, you've got to sweat. You've got to put out some effort. Why? Because there's a lot of rules. And to keep, make, you know, keeping all those rules takes effort. Religious people work very hard. In rebellion, the sin is visible. You know, it's just out there. <laughs> There's nothing to hide. It's on Facebook. You know, you, you see it all. The, the kid's coming home. You know, he's lost weight. He's strung out. It's visible. Sin and its effects. But with religion, sin is... It's in here. You look good on the outside. But pride and judgmentalism and a critical spirit and feeling superior to other people... That's all in here. That's kind of invisible, isn't it? Rebellion uses people. That's what rebels do. They want to go out, live however they want, squander everything, make a big mess, and expect somebody else to clean it up. Their brother or sister, their dad or mom, their grandparents, their church, the government, you know. Hey, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you pick up the tab, clean up my mess. That's rebellion. Religion doesn't use people. It judges people. We're the good people. You're the ones causing all the problems in this country. We're the one hold, ones holding the country together. We feel superior to you because we're the good people. And rebellion is just unrighteous. <laughs> the rebellious person says, I'm, I'm, I'm my own person. I want to express myself. I'm a free spirit. I'm unique. I want to be my own person. I want to be true to myself. I don't play by the rules. I do what I feel. That's rebellion. But religion is self-righteous. I'm better. I'm harder working than those people. I'm good. Bottom line, religious Pharisees don't really love Jesus. They don't. You know why? They don't need him. They're not passionately in love with Jesus Christ because they don't need him because they're good. I'm a good person. And they don't think they have much to repent of. Really? Repentance is for those dirty sinners. That's what they need to do, not us. You see, religious pride blinds you to your own sin. It does. Now, this next, this is just me, okay? This is not scripture. This is just Steve. Ten things you'll never hear from an older brother, religious type. I was wrong. Not going to hear that. Hardly ever, if ever. I haven't been doing my fair share. <laughs> You're just not going to hear that from a religious, proud, Pharisee, older brother type. 
They feel like they've been doing their fair share and more and you're not doing yours. I'm getting way more than I deserve in life. Not going to ever hear that. They think they're getting a raw deal and that God owes them better treatment than what they're getting. Remember the older brother? Where's my party? How come he gets a party? I've been good, better than him. I want to learn from you. You're better than I am. You're not going to hear that. It doesn't really matter if we do it my way. Your way, my way, whatever. Not going to hear that. You'll never hear this. My heart weeps over your misfortune. (laughs) Their heart doesn't weep. Their heart gloats over your misfortune because you're getting what you deserve. You reap what you sow, right? Your success is my joy. You're not going to hear that. I love it when God blesses idiots. (laughs) I'm all about celebrating God's scandalous grace to undeserving sinners. You will never hear that from the lips of a religious, lost Pharisee. So Jesus was saying there are two kinds of lostness, rebellion and religion. It's interesting to me in the story to note that the young rebel and his older religious brother do share a few things in common in their lostness. Both were resentful towards their father, right? Both were. The the prodigal basically was resentful towards dad because dad was blocking his happiness. Dad, you're in the way. I got goals. I got plans. I got ambitions. And you're standing in the way. I wish you'd get out of the way and give me some money. He was resentful of his father. But the older brother was resentful towards dad because he felt like dad wasn't recognizing how good he had been. Both felt entitled to better treatment. The younger son, the prodigal, you should be giving me more freedom, dad. You're boxing me in. The older brother, you're treating him better than you're treating me, and I'm the good kid. I'm entitled to better treatment. And third, the essence of lostness. Both were using the father instead of loving the father. Both sons were using the father, not loving him. The rebellious son used the father to get what? His money. (laughs) to Go sin. But the religious son was also just using the father. Really, when you you read the story, he, he wasn't concerned about his father's joy and gladness. No, I'm not going in. He was concerned about using his father's wealth to amass his own inheritance and build his own economic empire. He didn't share his father's joy. He didn't really love the father. So mark it down. There are two kinds of lostness. And mark this down as well. Your heart inclines towards either one or the other. You're in the story too, as am I. Your heart inclines one way or the other, towards rebellion and breaking the rules and expressing myself and doing my own thing and don't tell me what to do, or religion, I'm the good kid, I'm always doing what's right, I deserve to be treated well, and I feel superior to others. Your heart inclines in one of those directions, as does mine. You know, the two, though, are not mutually exclusive. You know that? Rebellion and religion. I've seen the same person manifest both. Think about um, a rebellious kid who gets saved and then does like this 180 and becomes, in a matter of weeks, this super-religious, hyper-religious person 
who's all condemning of people who smoke the things and drink the things and go to the places that he was doing a month ago. He's like, you people are terrible. It's like, wow, you really flip-flopped a lot there. You were, you know, doing those things not that long ago. I've also seen kids who've grown up in very conservative homes, moral homes, upright homes, you know, with rules and chores and confinements and be good, be good, be good. And then like the younger brother, when they get a chance to leave home, they're like, woohoo! <laughs> I've been religious for 18 years. I'm religious no more. I am irreligious big time now and go crazy. Seen both, right? Well, there's a second lesson here. Love this one. Two kinds of lostness, yes. Number two, God loves both rebels and religious people. Thank God. The Father wanted both of them to come in, right? And he deeply desires both to come home to him. I am so glad for this. I am so very glad that party boy prodigals who have wasted their lives in immorality and drinking and drugs, who dropped out of school and spent time in jail, who cursed their parents and stole things and made a mess of their life, that those prodigals can come to their senses and can repent and can turn and come back home to the Father and He will welcome them with open arms. That's some of your story, right? And God received you and you didn't have to earn it. In fact, you couldn't earn it. He just conferred it upon you as a gift. I am so glad that God loves prodigals and wants them home. You should praise God for his love and grace to you. But I'm even more glad that good church kids who never did drugs, never got drunk, never partied, who stayed a virgin when everybody else was out having sex all the time and who as a result felt superior to other sinners and judged them and felt entitled to being treated better by God and who overestimated how good they really were and felt proud and smug that they had read the Bible and prayed and gone to church and been in youth group and Awana. I'm really glad that the Father loves that person too because that's who I was. That's the way my heart is inclined. Some of you were rebels and prodigals and that's your makeup, but I'm, I'm the other way. I was the good kid, the president of the youth group, the kid who never smoked, never drank, wasn't out having sex with everything that moved like all the other kids in high school were. I was a good kid. And I was extremely proud. And I was judgmental. And I was forever in my mind comparing myself with other people. And I always somehow came out favorable in those comparisons. I was all concerned about image and appearance and being respected felt like God owed me something because of how I was living my life. It was, my soul was dark. Do you understand that? That's the heart of a religious person. And I will not forget the day that God brought all that right in front of my eyes. And for the first time I saw, he crushed me. And I saw my pride and arrogance and judgmental spirit and ungratefulness. Tears came streaming down my face as I realized I'm a sinner. I'm as much or worse of a sinner than all the party boy friends in high school I had. And God welcomed me home through Jesus Christ. Man, that's good news. God loves both. 
The Father wanted both. Come, into that. Come on in. Third, God is exceedingly glad when sinners of any kind repent and come back home to him. He wants his house full of humble, grateful, restored sinners. And one day he's going to throw the biggest party in the history of the world. And you don't want to miss that. It'll be unlike any party you've ever experienced here on this planet. You know what? Fourth lesson here. There's a third son in the story. And he shouldn't be ignored. You know, Jesus on many occasions said that the Bible was about him. And there's a third son in this story. It's not the rebellious son. It's not the religious son. It's the son of God who's telling the story. The redeeming son. He's in the story too. Luke tells us that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem when he was telling this story. And it was there in Jerusalem that the Son of God, the third Son, would be executed like a common criminal. And in so doing, he would bear the sins of both younger brother types and older brother types. He would take rebellion and religion, the sin of both, on himself and pay for all of our sins. That's good news. His death would completely pay the rightful penalty for all unrighteous rebellion and all self-righteous religion. His blood shed on the cross would be the price paid to redeem both prodigal sons and daughters and Pharisee sons and daughters. You see, rebellion and religion aren't the only two choices. You don't have to choose, you know, either I got to be rebellious or religious. No, there's a third way. It's the way of Jesus. And listen, the cure... For rebellion is not religion. Some people think, okay, man, I, <laughs> that's not where it's at. I'm going to go be religious. I'm going to be as good as I can try to be. That's not the cure. That never works because it's the same root. And rebellion is not the cure for religion. I've been religious. Now I'm going to go crazy. That's not the cure. That's not where meaningful, satisfying life is found. That's not where a relationship with our creator is found. It's found through the third way, the redeeming way of the third son. The way of Jesus is the way of redemption. That's where freedom and meaning and fulfillment are found. Everything the human spirit craves, everything your spirit craves in this life is found in receiving the life that was purchased for you by Jesus Christ on the cross, eternal life. And you can't earn it. He gives it as a gift. It was earned by someone else. And so for those who are inclined to seek freedom and meaning and fulfillment through being rebellious, Jesus says this to them. Let me take you home to the Father. I'm the true and better older brother who, unlike the older brother in the story, will chase you down, will come after you when you harden your heart and walk away, who will see you when you're partying yourself to death and your soul is still empty who will come to you and find you when you've hit bottom. I will send my spirit to open your eyes and bring you to your senses, and I will take you by the hand and bring you home to the Father's house. And to those who are inclined to seek freedom and meaning through religion and keeping the rules, Jesus says this, understand your righteousness, your righteousness is not enough. It's not as good as you think. You think you've obeyed, never disobeyed? Not so. 
and your righteousness will never be enough to gain the Father's approval. You must have my righteousness, my perfect righteousness, Jesus would say, and I offer it to you as a gift. I will gift this to you. I paid to be able to do that. When you drop your defenses and your pride and humbly receive the gift of life and righteousness that I purchased for you, then and only then will you be able to live out of that life and that new identity as a redeemed person. And only then will doing the will of God become your delight instead of your duty. See, religious people take no delight in trying to obey God. It is an obligation. It's a duty. But when the life of God pulsates through your spirit and your soul, you want to obey him. That's why John could write, his commands are not burdensome. They're my delight. Well, thank God for the third son a different way to approach God, a new and better way. Now, to finish, I feel like I can speak with some authority on this subject of being a proud religious Pharisee because I'm a recovering one. And I would say this to you. Some of you in this room, that's what you are. In fact, I'd say it this way. You might be a Pharisee if... You're mad at God for treating sinners with grace. If that irks you, why do they have a nice car? Why do they get the good family? Why do they have a nice house? Great job. Why? I'm the, they're doing this. I'm the good. That's how you think? You're a Pharisee. If you refuse to chase after rebellious younger brothers because you're just kind of disgusted with them, they're going to get what's coming to them. Heck with them. You're a Pharisee. In your heart, you are. If you're forever comparing yourself in your mind with other people and always coming out on the upper end of the stick, if you feel superior to others, I'm better. If you act that way, if you're judgmental and critical of other people, if that's your default mode, that's what Pharisees do. And that's the essence of being lost. You think, I've always obeyed. I've never disobeyed. I'm good. I'm good. I deserve better than I'm getting. I deserve better treatment than I'm getting, God. You're a Pharisee. If you don't love Jesus, maybe you like Jesus. You know, you like, he's like an accessory. You got your iPod, you got your gym membership, your personal trainer, Jesus. Just kind of another accessory to make your life better. Maybe you like him but you don't love him. See, when you see your sin for what it is, you know what happens? You love Jesus. You say, oh my, Jesus, that you would do that for me? No way. You, you, you got to be kidding me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I know there's some rebels in the room. That's how your heart is inclined. I'm going to break out. <laughs> if I wasn't such a church-going person, I would break out. And there's some Pharisees in the room, some religious people. And as I've described the older brother, as Jesus described the older brother, you know in your heart that's you. And I want to ask you this. If you'd raise your hand, if you do a very non-Pharisaical thing, 
and raise your hand if you would say, I'm more like that older brother than I care to admit, but I think Jesus wants me to admit it. Would you lift your hands? I'm more like that older brother than I care to admit, but I think Jesus is telling me I need to admit it. Well, I commend you just raising your hand. You can put it down as a step in the right direction, a very non-pharisaical thing to do. I'm going to ask you to do another non-pharisaical thing. If you want to really take steps to move away from that whole mindset, our prayer partners are going to stand up here and I'm going to ask you to come to one of them in a moment here and just tell them, it's in me. That's in me. That older brother spirit is in me. That judgmental spirit is in me. That proud spirit is in me. I do get mad that other people are getting it better than I am. So in that way, you would be a lot like me. And I'm going to ask you to do that in just a moment. Some of you are rebels, and you're, God's calling you back to his heart. And uh, I would encourage you to come as well, because the Father's arms are open to you. Maybe you just want to kneel and pray. You might be a parent here today, and you're thinking about your parenting of your kids, and the truth is you're raising Pharisees. Because you're all about being good and keeping the rules and insisting on obedience, and all that's good and fine. But where's Jesus? How is that different than a Mormon would parent or a Jewish parent would parent? Is it just all about morality and ethics? Or do you want to raise kids who love Jesus? Maybe as parents, you want to come and just kneel and say, God, help us. We don't get that. We don't know how to do that. God is speaking to you. I ask you to respond to him. He's the redeeming son. He will not shame you or condemn you or berate you. He will welcome you. So recovering Pharisees, come. (laughs) Admit it. Rebels, parents, let's stand together. Let's respond to what the Lord is saying to us.